Hello. Hello. And welcome to the New York Mystery Machine. Tamna Hall, but for... Ghosts. Ooh, <laughs> that was suspenseful. <laughs> What's going on, Christina? You know, uh, September. September. You know, Gosh. that, that September that weather. That crisp September air. We, we know it. We Apple picking it. starts now. That's what we do in September. We're really trying our best for this ploy. Burr, it's cold in here. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying so hard for this ploy to to, to really take hold. Yeah, of. but we're really so excited. We have some fun stuff. Mm-hmm. What a, the season's been a, a really really great season so far. I'm so excited to continue it. Um, and I feel that you know we often say on the show that it gets a little difficult every season because mm-hmm. you know there are only so many New York stories. Um, but some fun stuff's coming down the line this season because later this season, you know, we put a poll out at the end of season two of things that you guys want to hear. Mm-hmm. We put it on our social media. A lot of you got back and we listened. So one of those things was um, more on the road schedules. Yeah. Where we are taking road trips. And so we're happy to say that come this spring, we're going to take a full month on the road. I know. I'm excited about that. So it's going to be a full month of all road trip episodes. Uh, outside of New York, and we're really excited about it. And so I, w- I know we're so far from it now, mm-hmm. but I want to mention it now because I'm really excited about it. I want to also let you guys know that you know we we really listened to all that, that poll feedback. was not in vain. Yeah, we listened to all your feedback. We're really working our, our, our darndest to really cater to what you guys really want and uh, and to continue to dive deeper into all these different facets of New York and and even moving beyond New York a little bit. To, and if to, you want a third Hazel Drew episode, just like let us know. No one wants a third Hazel Drew you episode. You never know. Maybe someone out there is like, I don't know. I don't don't know. say you never know. There's no one who never wants know. a Hazel Drew episode. Um, we're, we're so excited. Um, uh, you know, it goes... It goes without saying, we're really appreciative of a really important group of human beings that exist in the world, and that's all of you listeners. But among all of you <laughs> listeners, um, we do want to take a moment to to thank a amazing group of human beings who decide to give us money every month, who decide to uh, to, 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 to give to, us a little of their hard-earned cash. Yeah, so we can buy some some things for the pod to keep it going. So. As always, we want to thank our patrons. We want to thank Jordan F., Carla C., <laughs> Sam M., Anne-Marie M., Christian L.B., Christina C.W., Kate E., Chrissy E.M., Jessica L., and Jordan W. That's a fun one. That's fun. That's and now fun. everyone can be like, ooh, what are these people's last names? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? You can find out by going to earlier episodes when we used to say they're all You know, we, we're grateful. We're grateful for all of you who have continued on this journey of, of supporting the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also like to thank everyone who has spent some time on our uh, Apple podcast page writing reviews. Yeah. So thank you for doing that as well. And if you haven't, go do it. What are you, what are you waiting for? I've been begging you for three years. <laughs> The show's not going to get better than it is right now. So <laughs> right, this is the moment. This is the moment. Um, but we oh no, be- is that why they're not doing it? Are they waiting for it to get better? <laughs> oh no! <laughs> what a tragedy! Like, I don't want to. My mom said, if, you know, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say it at all. Like, oh no! It's like what? What a terrible tragedy! We're like, we're just waiting for people to uh, <laughs> to start to start. <laughs> <laughs> making more comments about what they love about that show like we're just waiting to love something yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my God! Well, here we are. We're so excited to to really get into it today. Yeah. What are we doing today? Well, um, as you know, as the world knows, today um, we we reflect on the events that occurred twenty two years ago, and that is September eleventh. 22, right? right? It's 2023. 2021, yeah, 22. Yeah, 22 years ago. 22 years ago, uh, on September 11th, 2001, New York City descended into absolute chaos. Um, two planes, as we know, hit the World Trade Center. In addition, a plane hit the Pentagon, a plane uh, crashed in Pennsylvania. But uh, those of us living in New York know just how insane that, that morning was, that day was, and how insane the days that that followed Mm -hmm. were in new york and just the the sheer impact that 9-11 had on all of our lives yeah um is is pretty remarkable uh that day more than 2,600 people died in new york city alone yikes but one of those people who died one of those homicides was not connected with the terrorist attack on the trade center at all that single isolated murder remains a mystery exactly 22 years later to this day. Wow. So who was the murder victim? His name was Henrik Siviak, and his murder is unsolved. So who was Henrik? He was a native of Kraków, Poland. He had worked as an inspector for the Polish State Railways and its successor private entities. He was married to Eva Siviak, And they had two children, 17-year-old Gabriella and 10-year-old Adam. After he was laid off in 2000, Siviak came to New York City um, to visit his sister, Lucinia, who had been living in Far Rockaway, Queens Mm. for about six years. Despite lacking a work permit, he decided to stay and do what work he could Spending several, uh, sending several hundred dollars back to his family in Poland every few months to supplement his wife's earnings as a high school biology teacher. Okay, that was going to be my question, whether they came as well or if he's here Yeah, alone. he just came to see his sister, and then he started doing a little bit of work. Yeah. And then I was like, well, this is a good opportunity. I'm going to continue yeah. to work. Siviak hoped that eventually he could return to Poland and build a new house with all the money mm. that, he, that he made while living in the U.S., while Siviak was able to work, he struggled to learn English. He did take classes and watch television with his sister, but only improved slowly. Uh, so that, his sister Lucinia warned him, could put him at risk in New York. Mm. It's hard for people to get by in New York when they don't speak the language. Yeah. In America in general. Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately. She later told the Associated Press, quote, We told him the city was a dangerous place, but he didn't believe it. She told reporters that he loved New York and because of he because of his love for New York, it was so very hard for him to believe that it was a dangerous place. Hmm. That was a bad place. He loved the sights of New York. He loved the environment in New York. He loved as someone who liked to work hard. He loved mm-hmm. the hustle of New York. Throughout most of 2001, Siviak had been working at a construction site in lower Manhattan on the morning of September 11th. Following the attacks on the World Trade Center, the job site closed down as that part of the city was evacuated. Mm. Siviak could not afford to wait until work resumed, though. So after walking across the Brooklyn Bridge, he took the subway back to his sister's home. Mm-hmm. After looking through the classified ads in the Polish-language newspaper Novogenic, he found 
one with a cleaning service at Pathmark Supermarket in the Farragut section of Brooklyn. To fill out the paperwork, he went to an employment agency in Bay Ridge that served the city's Polish community. Wow. Yeah. Like, so this is 9-11. Yeah. The same day as the world is in chaos. Yeah. He was like, well, my job ended right now, so I should go find a new job right now. And like, get on the subway to get there. And just thinking about like how insane the subways were that day. And Yeah, I mean- Insane. He walked over the bridge, got back. Wow. And immediately was like, well, you know what I need to do? Find another job. And he finds one. He like goes to the newspaper. I'm also sort of, I mean, I'm also, I don't know what the word is, surprised, impressed that like the agency was still. Yeah, the agency was like, yeah, go Yeah, okay. Come fill his paperwork out. It's so hard to like put ourselves back in the memory of that day because we were kind of young. We were yes. both in high school, right? I was in high school. I was in seventh grade. Oh my, you're so much younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, what year in high school were you? I was a sophomore. That makes sense. It's like what, one, two, three, three years, three years. Um, yeah, like just the idea. It's hard. Yeah, so it's hard for me to even like imagine. Like for me, I keep thinking the entire city was shut down. Yeah. Like it was during COVID, but maybe right. it wasn't. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it was. Not enough it for wasn't. someone to not, yeah. you know, continue continue finding a job that That's same true. day. Yeah. Wow. Eva, his wife, said that he had a quote restless spirit. This is the reason he came to the United States in the first place, and most likely the reason he left that night to get more work. He wanted financial success for his family. He would do it at all costs, at every sacrifice. He would make it for them. God, this guy. Yeah. Eva learned about the terrorist attack that day when she got home for work. Um, she spoke to Henrik on the phone and, uh, you know, basically, you know, asked if he was okay, mm-hmm. asked what was happening. Um, he obviously didn't know all the details. Right. He had, his TV was broken at the time, oh, she says. Interesting. So, okay. So he's not getting updates the way yeah, he might. So. Everyone was glued to the television that day. If you weren't glued to the television, you don't know all the details of what happened. Um, Years later, when she was being interviewed by ABC News, Eva said, quote, I don't think he understood the gravity. Mm. He told me he went to a Polish agency in New York to look for work, and maybe there was work for him to do in some shop. I asked him not to go anywhere that evening, but he did. That makes sense, that not understanding the gravity. I don't think anyone understood the gravity for a while. Yeah, I know? agree. I think it's one of those situations where late in, in, in the days after we got the gravity of it, but that day I think shock was so yeah. there that we didn't understand the gravity of that right. shock. Um, yeah, it's pretty insane. At the employment agency, Henrik comforted the owner, whose husband worked at the World Trade Center. Uh, the owner had not contacted, had not been in contact with her husband that morning. In fact, she later learned that her husband had indeed died in the attack. Henrik learned that he could start later that night and return to Far Walkaway. So, so determined. Like, I don't even know what time it is. It's like late afternoon, early evening. He's like, I can go and work tonight. So, Siviak had never been to the Farragut neighborhood Mm -hmm. where the Pathmark supermarket was located. So he and his landlady looked over a subway map and decided he should take the A train to Utica Avenue, near the north end of Albany Avenue, the street on which Pathmark is located. Oh. However. Placing this in my brain. Okay. However. 
The landlady did not ask Siviak for the store's address. So she didn't realize that it was actually located about three to four miles south of where he ended up going. Oh, okay. Which is going to prove a crucial part of this story. Yeah. Then Lieutenant Tom Joyce of the NYPD's 79th Precinct told the Long Island Press True Crime Report in 2002, quote, that's what's so sad about this, that he was so far off. I mean... Ending up in the wrong part of town. Mm-hmm. And what we're going to soon find out is not just the wrong part of town, but the wrong part of town. Okay. Since Siviak did not know the man from the service he was supposed to meet, he told the agency how he would be dressed. Before leaving, he put on a jacket in a camouflage pattern with matching pants and black boots. He also carried a backpack with different pants and sneakers to change once he got into Pathmark. Before leaving, Siviak's landlady pleaded with him to reconsider going there, as in her opinion, it was a dangerous neighborhood and no one should go at night without any good reason, Mm. and especially on that night in particular. Mm. New York City was in absolute chaos. Everyone was anxious. Those day's events were still continuing to unfold, continuing to have effect on people, but she was unable to deter him. He was determined to go down and work for his family. Mm -hmm. That was the goal. So around 11 o'clock in the evening, Siviak gets off the subway and exits. He begins to walk west along Fulton Street toward Albany Avenue, several blocks away. A witness later called passing him as he did so. At the Albany intersection, Siviak turned right, heading north instead of south, as his direction said. Mm. So he's in all the wrong spots Right. Now. So in addition to getting Being off the train in the wrong three spot, miles away, he's also now going even further away from where right. he should be. Most definitely lost at 11 o'clock at yeah. night in New York City. That area of Bedford-Stuyvesant had been long seen by residents and the NYPD as one of the city's most dangerous. Mm. It's really hard to kind of imagine that now. As we're sitting yeah. down recording this in 2023, Bed-Stuy is a quite gentrified neighborhood. Yeah. Um, most, you know, if, if you are someone who lives in New York, I know we have listeners from all over the world, mm-hmm. um, including people who lived in New York, people who never came to New York. Um, you know, the, our neighborhoods here in New York have slowly been gentrified by gentrified. We mean, you know, taken over by more affluent people with more resources and in that pushing out local residents and people who are born and raised in the neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, even Williamsburg has changed. Well, yeah, that's what I was about to say. Yeah. So, you know, you know, for instance, you know, I'm from Williamsburg, Brooklyn. When I was a young kid um, before 2001. Mm -hmm. Um, Williamsburg was kind of a, you know, abandoned place. You know, we had, the neighborhood was really filled with a lot of immigrant communities. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of Southern Italians. There was, of course, um, the the Jewish community Mm -hmm. also lived here. And we had a lot of uh, people from Puerto Rico living Mm -hmm. here as well. Like those are the main three groups that took up. If you went a few uh, blocks the other way, you were entering Greenpoint, Mm -hmm. which was where all the Polish people uh, emigrated to when they came to America and to New York in particular. but Williamsburg for so long was a factory town. And when factories became obsolete in the 90s and other services started moving around, no one really did anything to those places. They yeah. just had abandoned. So for so long, Williamsburg just kind of remained as a place that was kind of caught in yeah. time still. And it wasn't until, ironically enough, 9 11, 
where mm. so many of the neighbors of Brooklyn, which honestly began with Williamsburg as the beginning yeah. of that standpoint, started to gentrify. And by that, it's people who were at the time living in Manhattan, didn't right. want to live in Manhattan anymore, but wanted to live in New York City because of the opportunities it presents. Yeah. But felt Manhattan was unsafe because of a no, terrorist right. attack. That just I hadn't happened. made the connection that... Yeah, and so people looked for a space so they can go, and they looked across the East River, and they're like, oh, what's that spot? Yeah. You know, my mom always says Williamsburg was New York's best-kept secret. Mm-hmm. It was cheap, it was five minutes to Manhattan, and, it, you know, it was home. Mm-hmm. And so people started moving there, then their families and friends started moving in. People with money and resources from other states coming in where, you know, you were able to save a lot of money in the other states because cost of living is so down that you come to New York and able to buy bigger things yeah. at bigger prices and so gentrification comes into place and people started selling their homes and so Williamsburg was and now the, it's expensive AF Williamsburg was the first stop in that gentrification train yeah. and then it moved to Bushwick it moved to Greenpoint and of course it moved to Bedford-Stuyvesant yeah. a neighborhood that at this time in 2001 was actually quite a, a rough neighborhood to be in right. and today as we record this episode is not as much no um, no you know, right next door is Crown Heights, which also at this time is a very tough neighborhood. Yeah. Now, not as much. Not, it's very yeah. gentrified, which is gentrification in general is a very problematic thing. I'm a big believer that yep. um, improving our neighborhoods is really perfect. Pushing people out of those neighborhoods is not. Yes. Um, and so and there's an importance in in building our neighborhoods up, but we should be building our neighborhoods up in order. At, we shouldn't build our neighborhoods up by pushing people out. Of right. Them. Agreed. Who, who said there all these years. Anyway, long tangent on gentrification. But <laughs> it's important to note that gentrification had a really big effect on this because if you're someone living in New York or don't know the right. culture of the time, Bed-Stuy, when I was a kid, was extremely right. dangerous. And now it's not. I have so many friends who live in Bed-Stuy right. and it's fine. All the NYPD's available officers were on duty that night. Most were already working overtime. Some even had returned from distant vacations. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear those stories a lot when... Things happened on 9-11. So many people were relieved to know that their friends or family were off that day, only to find out they came in because there was a terrorist attack and it was all hands on deck. Right. Um, Many were needed to provide increased security in neighborhoods close to ground zero. Mm -hmm. It's important to note how just insane the environment downtown Manhattan was at that time. Um, They were also sent to other possible targets for a feared follow-up attack. Um, places that include the United Nations, mm-hmm. uh, the Empire State Building, mm-hmm. uh, the Chrysler Building, other really high, yeah. you know, spots where you know attack would be very prevalent. Yeah, my grandmother worked at the Federal Reserve Bank. And oh yeah, Federal was, Reserve as well. Uh, Wall Street, any yeah. other spots on Wall Street. Police feared that criminals elsewhere in the city would use the distraction of the terrorist attack as an advantage, so they were also out patrolling for those causes and reasons as well. One exception to this was the northernmost block of Albany Avenue. Detective Mike Pratt, now retired, told ABC News, quote, Unfortunately for him, that block at the time was a bad block. Heavy drug use, heavy gang involvement, that seemed to be like its own little place in the world, and outside of events, and outside events never really touch it. Mm. At roughly 11.40 p.m., residents said they heard an argument followed by gunshots. There seemed to be many voices, according to them. It seemed like a group of people, perhaps, not just one or two people. A woman living on nearby Decatur Street, was, who was also taking care of her sick mother, said she heard the argument but was too afraid to look out the window. Siviak had been shot once in the lung, 
As he staggered away from the spot he was shot in, he left a trail of blood. The blood trail started near the north end of Albany and ended at the stoop of a row house at 119 Decatur. This is where Henrik would ring a doorbell and search for help. A resident of that building told the police that she had heard the doorbell, but like her neighbor, she was too fearful to answer the door in the wake of the gunfire that preceded it. Mm. I know, this sounds quite eerily like what we thought the initial reports of the Kitty Genovese case I was just going to say. Where people were just too afraid to actually do something. Yeah. The map to see where. Oh, I have a map for you. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, this is what we're looking at map-wise. Okay. Of And I'll post this map on the Instagram as well, our social medias, as to where Siviak was, where the 79th Precinct was, where the subway station was, and where the supermarket he was supposed to eat. Tragic. Right. Look how far that right. that that supermarket is. Yeah, I was gonna say when you were first talking, I was like, Utica, yeah. Utica. A that doesn't make sense. It's so far. Um, but he. It looks like he also didn't make it very far from the train station. Then to no, he was kind of wandering in the wrong direction already. Yeah. At eleven forty-two p.m., someone called nine one one. So unlike what was told in that initial uh, Kitty Genevieve story. The actual 911 call came quite quickly. Okay. You know, we spoke earlier in the season about, in our opener about Kitty Genovese and how it took forever for someone to even call the police, Mm -hmm. which was very disputed by both the police and the New York Times at the time. Um, But roughly two minutes after the gunshots were heard, it was reported and police and ambulances were on their way pretty quickly. Um, Now, the police and the ambulances were not coming in full force. Because again, mm. right. everything is in disarray. You know, ambulances from all across the city was headed to the was down at the trade center at this right. time, um, going back and forth, bringing people to hospitals. Police right. precincts from all over the city were down at the trade center, and not in the city, right? We covered that case last year. Where... Yeah, where people from upstate New York were coming, and people from Long Island were yeah. coming, and people were just coming to help. Um, this is something that we're going to chat about in a little bit. Just the idea of the actual. Um, limited amount of resources once again and we yeah we spoke last season about the resources in finding a missing person in Mm -hmm. upstate new york because so many of those resources and forensic teams were down in new york city at that time when the police and the paramedics did get there it didn't take too much time for them to make the call on henrik's condition henrik siviak was pronounced dead at the scene this is all just a tragedy and we're going to learn um a bit more that the effects of the terrorist attacks on 9-11 would really stretch and influence this case as well. When we get back from our break, we're going to dive into the investigation mm-hmm. of what happened, the police trying to figure out what happened, uh, as well as the legacy of this case as well and, and how the family is trying to still figure out to this day Gosh. what happened to Henrik. We'll be right back. The New York Mystery Machine is brought to you in part by listeners like you. That's right. Head on over to our Patreon, and for as little as $3 a month, you can help keep the pod growing. By joining, you can access a whole bunch of cool stuff, such as mini-episodes, swag, exclusive playlists, and more. Head to www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine to find out more and become a patron. That's www.patreon.com slash NY Mystery Machine and join our ever-growing community today. 
Okay, we are back, and we're chatting all about Henrik Siewiak, uh, this Polish immigrant coming to New York, coming to America for the opportunity to, to, to make money, to send home in Poland to this family, um, and the tragedy of a senseless death that yeah. occurred that evening on September 11th. I want to begin this portion of the episode with a quote for the New York Times. Okay. Michael Wilson writes the following, quote, to be the last man killed on September 11th is to be hopelessly anonymous, quietly mourned by a few, while year after year, the rest of the city looks towards lower Manhattan. No one reads his name into a microphone at a ceremony. No memorial marks the sidewalk where he fell with a bullet in his lung. Ooh. Yeah. It's important to kind of realize that we're going to learn more about it, but Henrik is not connected to the September 11th attacks. And yet, at the same time, his death is directly connected to those attacks. Right, 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 right. As he was someone in a city in pure chaos, Mm -hmm. in a city with limited resources at the time because of the chaos, Mm -hmm. his death comes of that. And looking for work because his... Very and specifically, for, his construction site was, was right? closed down. So Henrik's death is absolutely connected to the yeah. 9-11 tr- terrorist attack, and yet isn't connected in memorial at all. Yeah. The investigation into the evening's events is a tough one. Due to the day's events, the NYPD could not bring its full investigative resources to the crime scene. We've talked about 9-11 a few different episodes, like I said before the break, and each time we're saying the same thing. Officers, firefighters, paramedics, they were all spread out so thin downtown. And as I said before the break, in addition to being spread out thin downtown at the actual Trade Mm -hmm. Center, uh, Ground Zero, they were also spread out to these other spots in New York where they were just terrified that perhaps the attacks weren't over. It's a really important thing to remember in this entire case that that day, especially for those of us living in New York, but those of us living in the country as a whole, we didn't know when the next attack was going to come. Right. Right. We look back on 9-11 as this moment in time where these events happened in the morning and towards the afternoon. Right. Mm-hmm. Two planes, Trade Center Towers, plane in Pennsylvania, plane in the Pentagon. Um, but for all we knew, this was the beginning phase of one. something else. Yeah. This was be another phase, another phase. We didn't know what was going to happen. Were there more bombs or was yeah. it? So many things put together in order to incapacitate New York and America at the same mm-hmm. time. We just didn't know. And so that's why the resources were so spread thin because we were, for all intents and purposes, at this time, we were trying just to protect everyone, you yeah. know, um, as best we could. Rudolph Giuliani, huh. you know, disgraced, awful human being. At the time, yeah. he was in the forefront of making sure that the New York, that the NYPD and right. all the paramedics were like on the scene in every location they can be. Rudy ended up being a terrible person. Oh, yeah. But for that day... As my grandmother would say, that fascist. But for that day was was part of trying to make sure that New York was not going to be continuously attacked for the rest of that day. Yeah. Normally, in the case of a homicide, uh, the crime scene unit would secure the area, collect forensic evidence, but its members were not available. Again, we are collecting evidence at the Trey Towers. According to ABC News contributor and former NYPD chief of detectives Robert Boyce, quote, each borough was pretty much acting at its own police department on 9-11 and the days and weeks to come. Boyce was the commanding officer of the 40th Precinct in the Bronx at the time. He was appointed the chief of detectives in 2014 and retired in 2018. He continues, quote, 
Normally, when we have a homicide, we will incorporate everybody in the NYPD, all different units to help solve it if we don't have any witness or don't have any kind of direction on it or any motive early on, which we didn't in the Siviac homicide. We would take the narcotics division. We would take the gang division. We would take the vice division. Whatever we could, go into that area and see if they can find some kind of witness. Mm -hmm. They would tell us exactly what happened or what they were hearing. Because of 9-11, we couldn't do that. We were sending resources down to lower Manhattan. Complete uncertainty we were operating in that day and the days after. We didn't know who survived. We didn't know how many people died. We were operating really just flying by the seat of our pants. This is something I don't think we've ever experienced prior to or after. Yeah. You know, it's just an idea of, you know, I think it's important to kind of get a sense of how police do act in these situations. We don't have any leads, which they don't. They don't have any leads on who committed this murder. So great. We're going to send all of our divisions down so they can cover, they can plaster all of the the various facets. The the vice squad, drug, uh, narcotics divisions, gangs, all these divisions coming together, but everyone was so spread thin that night. Right. Um, it is wild to think about because, yeah, even just thinking about like, God, if you had a heart attack that night, completely unrelated somewhere, like just the ambulance getting to you would be, again, spread thin. With I don't know what the report on any any other casualties yeah. of, the, uh, of the day were. Um, we know this as the only other homicide that took sure, place. Sure, yeah, and, and and you know that that took place that day, but certainly anyone with any sort of medical problem, mm-hmm. you know, who knows? Yeah, just thinking about hospitals are filled to capacity. I do remember that, right? Yeah. That hospitals were filled to capacity with with victims of nine eleven and the terrorist attacks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that idea that the resources were so spread thin is just another piece of this mm-hmm. case that really pushes. Um, the fact that this case is so connected yeah. to these terrorist attacks in an indirect way that's actually quite direct. And I imagine is also explaining why it's still unsolved. Yeah. Instead of how things usually played out in these cases, an evidence collection unit normally used only on nonviolent property crimes, such as burglaries, perform those tasks. So... People, so yeah, so they're sending in a unit that really is not rooted in any sort of forensics, right? Is not looking at blood splatter, it's not looking at any of those things. They're just they're not experienced in that per se, they're really experienced in just locating uh evidence for burglaries, which is that's a very different, very different, right? Like when it comes to a murder, we know we've covered enough of them on this case, like. In terms of murder, it's important to be able to handle all the evidence in a specific way. Not to say that these people collecting evidence wouldn't handle it incorrectly or sloppily, but they're not used to doing yeah. it for a murder case. They're yeah. not used to being the people on site, the first people on site to do this. Yeah. Instead, they're trying to adapt to the situation as best they can. And where as many as nine detectives might canvass the neighborhood during during these cases when they were talked to potential witnesses and look for evidence from the scene, the NYPD can only spare three at most. So they're sparing only three officers to kind of take care of this, look right. for evidence with people who have not experienced in looking at murder crime scenes and kind of doing their best to do that. Yikes. Detective Mike Pratt said, quote, Siviak wasn't afforded the initial experts in processing the homicide scene. The police department gave that investigation what it could to do what it could do that day. 
He said that he hoped investigators who were able to respond collected all the evidence they could. He could not be sure they had either. Mm. And it turns out, you know, as it's a case that Sullen saw, they didn't. They weren't yeah. able to get as much as they could. Not to say they did a bad job, you know. I, I We have spent a lot of time on the show really talking about poorly botched, botched, botched jobs by the yeah. NYPD. We've done a lot of that. As early as episode three of this, um, mm-hmm. uh, episode one of the season, when we're mm-hmm. talking about Kitty Genevieve's. Um, I don't consider this per, botched per se. I just, I mean, it was botched by circumstance. Right, yeah. As yeah, opposed yeah, yeah. by incompetence. Right. You know? Right. The evidence collection technicians were able to retrieve spent shell castings from the 40 caliber gun that was fired at Siviak. The shooter had fired seven times, but only hit him once, once again in the lungs. In Siviak's wallet was $75 in cash, suggesting that the robbery had not been the motive, or if robbery had been the motive, it was botched. Right. Police had no suspects from the beginning. People were out all over the streets that night, but according to Pratt, witnesses were vague. The NYPD interviewed the people who they said heard gunshots, as well as those who had dialed 911 to report the case, to report the murder. But no eyewitnesses ever spoke out. Pratt offered that it was, quote, a hard block to get witnesses to come forward because of gang and drug involvement. Mm -hmm. It's a place where you you didn't want to be a snitch in that neighborhood. The investigation was yielding very little results. According to Detective George Harvey, the case was, quote, kind of something that was pushed aside. We really didn't receive a lot of help from the public. Henrik was an outsider, and it seemed to authorities his death meant little to those who called the houses of Albany Avenue and to Canner Street home. Harvey continued, quote, Back in 2001, there was no iPhones. There were no video cameras. There was a few, but not like there is today in the neighborhood. Every building around here pretty much has a camera on it. It makes it easier to solve some of the crimes. But back then, in 2001, we just relied on the public to come forward and give us information. Mm -hmm. Lucinia Siviak believes that the killer may have thought her brother was a terrorist. His Hmm. camouflage outfit made him appear military. Interesting. The first police officers to respond to the scene thought he might have been one of the many National Guardsmen deployed to the city in the wake of the attacks. That, combined with his dark hair and imperfect, heavily accented English, may have led people to believe he was Arab. Hmm. His sister said, quote, I think maybe it was a mistake. There were many angry people. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, thinking him in camouflage also, when we remember, I remember we found out who did did this on the night of September 11th, I believe, right? Like, that was a big thing. I have no recollection. I think we were already talking about Mm Al-Qaeda that evening. I could, I mean, or at least soon after, but I I could vaguely remember when the president spoke that evening. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the the vague thing that he gave, that it was people from um, that area of the world. So Mm -hmm. perhaps the idea of it... Right. I mean, immediately the aftermath was we had very strong, very racist responses. Yeah. To I mean, anyone like, who seems Islamophobia that came yeah. about from 9-11 is still going on to yep. this day. I mean, we have not escaped that. It, yeah. Uh, you know, it's something super prevalent, um, you know, and, and also 
were marked upon in a lot of text and a lot of media. Um, if anyone's familiar with the musical Come From Away, hmm. um, Come From Away is a musical about all the planes that were grounded in the town of Gander, Newfoundland. Um, and among those planes, which was thousands upon thousands of people who were who were grounded there for, for days on end that the week following uh, the attacks, you know, it also tells of the 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 people of Middle Eastern descent who are mm-hmm. also on that plane. In particular, there's a whole story about this Egyptian man who was traveling for work mm. and so many people on the plane just assumed him to be a terrorist mm. because of what they had perceived right. from the media. Meanwhile, he was a chef from a world-class hotel, yeah. a world you know, high-end chain just going to work. Right. But like so many people of Middle Eastern descent of that time, mm-hmm. they were being targeted. And right. so perhaps Henrik with his, you know, not, great English mm-hmm. with the fatigues that he wore with his darkish complexion right. was misguided and was was misinterpreted as yeah. someone of that's Middle Eastern descent. That's an interesting theory. The NYPD has not classified the homicide as a hate crime mm-hmm. since so little is known about it. Mm-hmm. If it was a robbery due to Henrik's trouble with English, he'd probably would not have understood what was happening if someone was trying to rob him. Right. Right, asking, yeah, being asked for the wallet or to turn yeah, over what you got. Yeah, you know, that however. idea of, you know, struggling through. Right. It was really tough for him. He did. He only learned English through classes and through... Television. Television, yeah. and he was only in the country for less than a year. I was going to say, it's all, yeah, that's not much time. Pratt continued his, to investigate the crime, which is now considered a cold case, until his retirement in 2011. Mm. He would continue to talk to suspects, not just for that crime, but many others in the neighborhood. So, for instance, any time in the in the progress in, in the in the the later months and years when there was a crime in the neighborhood, he would also talk about the Henrik case, the Civic case, mm. to see if he can get any leads. You know, yeah, were you also responsible for this? Right. Do you know people who are responsible for this? Trying his best to find as many leads as he can years after yeah. the the case was cold. No new witnesses ever came forward. Mm-hmm. A $12,000 reward has been offered that is still in place today. Okay. As of 2018, Pratt still believes the cause of death was a botched robbery. I wonder what would have like caused it to not but, succeed right like if he stumbles away for a robbery they would just f- follow and grab the wallet right the wallet's like, still in his pocket like the wallet's right. still on his person so maybe there's a struggle yeah but he but they said they fired seven times right so i don't know probably maybe he saw something he shouldn't have seen right that would make sense to me that's my initial what gets me is seven gunshots one hits Seven gunshots, right. only one hits. Yeah, in my brain, I guess I was seeing this as like a close encounter, but if it was a very close encounter, you wouldn't need seven. You need one. Right. You need a one shot. So I don't know how far he is from me. So I don't know. Which also doesn't make sense to me in terms of like a robbery. Like yeah, how far away are you shouting for this? Well, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. I I live outside of the camp of a botched robbery because yeah. I don't understand how seven shots go off and one hits for a right. botched robbery. If I'm robbing someone, I'm You're doing up it. close. I'm up close right. already. And I have all the power. I have a gun in my hand. Right. So I don't need to be any further away. So I don't know. Maybe he saw something he shouldn't have seen, tried to flee and mm-hmm. get shot and get shot at and then finally shot once. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's so much mystery around that we just don't know. Interesting. Siviak's murder received little of the media attention. 
that might have led to witnesses to come forward because all of our focus was on the terrorist attacks right. on the Twin Towers. We weren't talking about Henrik's death right. in, the, in, the, in the preceding days. What coverage there was came about a month later. Mm. Neither Siviak's sister nor his widow believe that the case will ever be solved. That's hard. Quote, I'm afraid this is forever, Eva Siviak told the Times in 2011. And his sister said, quote, I think the police have many, many cases, and maybe they'll never call me. Uh, the deaths from the September 11th attacks are not included in New York City's official crime statistics for 2001. Mm. Henrik Siviak's death is the only homicide recorded in the city on that date. The FBI also did not record the 2,977 deaths from the attacks in their annual violent crime index for 2001, citing citing the fact that these deaths were statistical outliers and would erroneously skew FBI Mm. analytics. The case remains open, and its family is left with a ton more questions than answers. Oof. And that it, is the cold case. That is that is a rough one. If, you know, it, I feel like often families talk about all this hope they have that it'll still be solved, or that, and they've just they they're lost. like they've they've they, lost they all hope. Know how unlikely it is. Yeah, they've lost all hope. Unfortunately, it's really a sad thing to just not know. Yeah. Gosh. Poor guy. Yeah. Uh, as always, as we say in this, if you do have any information on this case, we, we ask you to reach out to the police. Yep. Whatever information. If you have any theories, though, you can head over to our social media uh, at NY Mystery Machine on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at NY Mysteries on Twitter or X or whatever. Whatever it is the hell today. it is these days. Or you can email us nymysterymachine at gmail.com. I want to offer a special thanks to friend of the show, Natalie Rinchuk, for helping with pronunciations. <laughs> Her Thanks, her, Natalie. Her and her mom helped me with those Polish. Tri- I love that. Those Polish pronunciations today, so I didn't have to butcher them. As I was going to say, I was impressed. I wasn't sure, you know. On the show, we often butcher things. Has Adam been studying Polish? No, I just ask questions. <laughs> A lesson to all of us Look at- on the show who host the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that is the case of uh, the only other homicide on Oof. September 11th 2001 well thank you for that I had I never knew anything about this yeah I, I came across this case uh, in season one when I was studying Sneha mm. and um, I wanted to cover it and I figured I'd wait until our next 9-11 episode and so here we are it's just such a sad thing yeah um, you know in a, in a city that's so she was so shrouded in chaos that day yeah. um, to have no answers and no follow-up, not a single theory, of the, at least to know, like, oh, it's a botched haunt. Right. At least I know what happened. Right. But to not know not anything even know. Yeah. is really painful. Uh, we ask you to to uh, be sure to follow us on, on our socials, to, to like uh, the show and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. And um, we want to take a moment to just acknowledge everyone who uh, passed away on the who passed away on 9-11. Um, I know people. I have friends who know people. I have friends who lost parents and loved ones. I'm sure Christina does. I'm sure any of you who live in New York do as well. And so, um, you know, from all of us at New York Mystery Machine, we do offer always our condolences and and um, just always sending light to, to everyone who's been affected by these awful senseless murders. Um, 
And uh, that is about it. Uh, if you are in New York, you can feel free to visit the September 11th mm-hmm. Memorial and Museum a, down in Ground yeah. Zero. Um, it is a fascinating, mm-hmm. uh, fascinating museum. Hard to lo- hard to look at. I, I I find myself. It's rare where I find myself down in that area of Manhattan because it's such yeah. it's still such a hard thing to to be at. And so. Yeah. We are back all new next week. Next week. And uh, I've been Adam Ace. I've been Christina Marinelli. And thank you for taking a ride on the New York Mystery Machine. Tammany Hall, but for ghosts. Mm-hmm.